0: Something we see in the Bible over and over and over again is the way that God works in the lives of individuals and the lives of His people is very, very, uh, the only way I can think to say it is minimalistic. God l- l- seems to like to work on a shoestring budget. I, one of the stories that ought to come to mind right away is a guy named Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? God found this a powerful and valiant warrior hiding in a wine press, beating out his grain because he was so chicken. And God called him to defeat the enemies of the people of Israel, a massive army that couldn't be counted, that had cavalry and uh, weapons that Israel didn't have. And when Gideon called an army together to go conquer this enemy, when he brought the army together, God, what did God say to him? Do you remember what he said in Judges 7-2? You know, Gideon, I just really feel like your army is too big. So send everyone home who is afraid. Send anyone home who has wet britches already. Get him out of here. So he sends everybody home who's scared. And then after that, God says, "You know, I still feel like your army's too big. I'm concerned, Gideon, that if you went in with this army, that you guys might think that you won this thing. So take all the guys down to the pond, have them get a drink, I'll tell you which guys to keep. And depending on how they drank the water at the, at the, at the creek or the pond, determine which guys he kept, and he got to keep 300 guys. And God said, yeah, that's a perfect-sized army, because if you win this thing, there's no way you can take credit for it. It's too small. I want to make sure that you can't boast in your own strength, but that you would boast in the victory of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says the same thing over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll just read it. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning of verse 28, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast in him it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us our wisdom from god that is our righteousness holiness and redemption therefore is as it is written let him who boasts boast in the lord even the apostle paul said this our our victory spiritually our new life spiritually is nothing that we can boast about it's completely accomplished in the lord All the way through Scripture, you see God working in such a way to make sure that nobody could brag about what God had done and to make sure no one could say that, I saved me. But rather, God wants us to have to say, I I couldn't save me. God did it. God doesn't want us to be able to say, by my own strength, I was saved. He wants us to be required to say, after we see the work of the Lord, to say, the strength of the Lord saved me. God's strength was faithful here. My strength was meaningless. So the title of the message today is God's Champion, God's Champion, and I want to look at three different ways that God works through His champion. His champion isn't Goliath, just so you know. That's in chapter 17, so we're going to get there in a minute. You're following with me. God's champion, number one, God's champion has devotion in lowliness. God's champion has devotion. In lowliness, Samuel was sent by God to anoint a new king because King Saul had been rejected by God. God said, I've rejected you, Saul. You are no longer the king. The kingdom is torn from you. It will be given to your neighbor who is better than I. God was looking for a man who had a heart that was fully devoted to him. And so God was going to find a king, find a man who was wholly devoted to him. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem. You've heard of Bethlehem, same place. He goes to Bethlehem, he goes to Jesse's household, and he is to anoint a king among Jesse's sons. And interestingly, the Sam, Samuel, the prophet, Mr. Goody Goody-Two-Shoes, the prophet. never does anything wrong. I mean, ask Saul. What does he do the moment he gets there? He sees Samuel uh, excuse me, he sees David's older brother, handsome Eliab. He walked in, perfect hair. He's like seven foot seven. He's just ripped. Yeah, you know, they wore like those robes, but he was like the one guy in all of Israel who you could tell he was ripped even under a robe. You know, tall, dark, and handsome, perfectly straight white teeth. When he, They didn't need the lights on. Just Eliab would just smile so the room would light up, and he would... I mean, he walks in, and Samuel goes, now this guy, look at this king right here. King has walked into the, his house. Welcome home, King Eliab. And what does God say? Samuel, what are you doing? Haven't we done this once before? What was the credentials for King Saul? He was head and shoulders, taller than anyone else in Israel. Really, Samuel, we're going to use the same credentials. Mr. tall, dark and handsome is your king. God says, "No, listen, Samuel. Listen, Jesse. God looks at these things completely different than how you guys are looking at. It. God looks at the heart. God looks at what is going on in the, on the inner man, the inner mind, the inner soul of a person and, and, and judges at whether or not he is attuned to the things of God. Samuel, the godly prophet, Jesse, the father of his sons, and all of the brothers, they get this completely wrong as to what God is up to. They assume God's champion, God's man must be a man who looks the part. We just need a man who looks the part kind of like Saul did, but we need a tall, dark, and handsome king who also has a good heart. And God says, you guys have completely missed the point. God looks at the heart. He says this in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16, do not consider His appearance. How much should He consider His appearance? Do not consider His appearance. Do not even have that on the job qualifications. Do not consider His height." Do not consider how he looks. I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart of the person who was devoted to him, the the person who is holy in his sight. Another place in Scripture says, Be holy as I am holy. What does holiness mean? Holiness merely means a person is set apart to be used by God, devoted to God and His things. Certainly, David wasn't pure before God, was he? Was David perfect? No, uh, he, was, he was far from perfect. We're going to discover this over the course of his life. But David was, was devoted to God. And where was David when all this is occurring? He's off shepherding. Mr. Lowman on the Totem Pole, probably not as tall as his older brother, Eliam. He was the youngest. He ranked so low in his family order of things, his dad didn't even invite him. I don't even know how to, what, what David was thinking when that occurred. You have to sort of wonder, did David even know this was happening? They, they, not only was David not included, he was so far from a the thought they wouldn't have even considered him for kingliness. And yet David, on the... Shepherd's field, tending his sheep, has a heart devoted to the Lord. In his lowliness, in his humility, in his service to his unthankful brothers and father, he shows devotion to the Lord. We find out later in the story that out there in the sheepfold, protecting his sheep, he has to protect them from all kinds of predators. We discover in the next section, in chapter 17, that a lion sought to attack and kill his sheep. So you know what David did? He attacked a lion, and he killed it with his bare hands. He struck the lion and killed the lion. If that wasn't bad enough, he was then attacked by a bear. And David, out on his own, no one to help him but the Lord, struck the bear and killed him as well. In his lowliness, he was... Any other shepherd... Do the math. How many sheep are there? How many sheep were there? Do we know how many sheep he had? Sure, we do. Eliab is going to tell us in chapter 17. How many sheep? Your few sheep. Your pitiful, pitiful flock of sheep, David. That's what he, how his brother is going to assess his flock. So David, for his few sheep, his his pitiful flock of sheep, yet it was his stewardship. He stood up to the lion. He stood up to the bear in faithfulness, not merely as a shepherd, but to his God who had called him to it. He was a good shepherd not only of his sheep, but one day for his people, Israel. He had no rank. He had no position. He had no reputation. He had nothing on his resume. And yet, what was he? The Bible tells us over and over again, he was faithful to the Lord and his stewardship. I want us to understand something very, very early on in our review of David's life in Samuel, which is going to take us to June. And this is the first place, really, where he is mentioned. David's story is not a Cinderella story. What's a Cinderella story? Cinderella story is the person who toils in lowliness, grits their teeth and bear it, puts on a stiff upper lip and, and, and stoicism and, and resolute of heart. They know one day I'm going to get mine. One day I'm going to get my glory and my, my, the power, and uh, this is all going to pay off if I just grin and bear it. This, David's story is not a Cinderella story. David's story is the same story we see throughout Scripture where glory is not found by getting through loneliness, Glory is found in lowliness. David was already experiencing the glory and power of God in his lowly position as the youngest also ran, who's that kid at the end of the table, shepherd. His glory was in his faithfulness and his devotion to God, even in his meaningless, simple, absolutely unimportant job tending his few, few sheep. David's story is a story of glory and devotion in the loneliness that in my heart, being devoted to God, God is there in my loneliness. God's champion has devotion in his Loneliness. We discover this in David, out in the sheep, out in the fields, not even considered to be king, and yet he was devoted to God in the midst of his loneliness. We find in the Psalms he was called from the sheepfold, tending sheep in faithfulness into a shepherding role as king. Just a quick question on that before we move on to the second part of this when we think about our devotion to the Lord in the midst of humility, uh, humiliation, lowliness in our life, certainly we've all gone through those times in our life where we say, okay, this is horrible. This is not what I planned. God, I thought when I believed in You, You lifted me up. The the way would always be straight. I would never trip again. I would never have another need. Everything would be glory and power and magic. I would skip and sing all the way into heaven. And now I'm in this lowly, humiliating position The question I think that is worth asking in the midst of those uh, conditions, those conditions of lowliness and humiliation, is my devotion to God in the midst of loneliness only a means to which I'm trying to get God to get me out of it? Or is my devotion to God in the midst of the lowliness a good understanding that in lowliness and humiliation, God is glorified in my devotion? That it doesn't have to end. That that being devoted to God in, in low positions is not a means to gain high positions. Being devoted to God in loneliness is a means to experiencing the glory of God in the midst of loneliness. I mean, I know our prayers are always mixed in terms of our motivation. Well, maybe not yours. Mine are. You know, but we pray, God, deliver me from this, not my will, but yours be done. We even quote Jesus, right? Because we know if we quote Jesus in that prayer, now he'll give me what I actually want. So if, I, if I'm really, really godly, God, he will give me what I want. And, and what God shows us in David is, you know, somebody who's experiencing the glory of God, whether or not he ever leaves the sheep field, whether or not his few sheep ever become many sheep, whether or not he ever becomes king or he just simply spends the rest of his days tending Jesse's sheep in some far-flung forgotten field. Where's David? I didn't even know he was missing, is what most of his family would say. Am I devoted to God merely so God will lift me up, or am I devoted to God in the midst of lowliness of state, because that is how I experience God's glory and pleasure even in that loneliness? God's champion has devotion in lowliness. Look at verse 13 with me of chapter 16. Samuel took a horn of oil... It's not a trumpet, if it's an actual animal horn, it was full of oil. He would have poured it on David's head. It would have covered his whole head, come ran down his hair, ruined his garments. But that's the whole idea. Anointed him, marked him by God. He anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, what's it say? The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then departed. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. God's champion has devotion in lowliness, and second thing we want to understand here is God's champion has power by the Spirit of God Himself. God's champion has power by the Spirit of God Himself. Now, of course, Saul had rebelled against the Lord, and and the Lord had rejected Saul because of his rejection of God, And, and the Spirit of God had departed from Saul. In fact, it says in verse 14 of 1 Samuel 16, An evil spirit was sent by God to torment Saul. So so Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit. That's terrible. I mean, it's horrible. You can't explain that kind of suffering. Saul's attendants came to him and said, Listen, why don't you find a guy who can play a harp and can play music around you, and maybe he'll make you feel better. Why a harp? Why somebody play music around? Because they didn't have iPods or iPhones back then. Otherwise, they just would have made a... playlist for him, evil spirit playlist for Saul. That's ridiculous. I apologize for that. That was, I don't. Um, so they get David. Uh, they find out David, son of Jesse in Bethlehem. He knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man. In fact, he's a warrior. Uh, why don't you bring him in? And so they bring David in to minister to Saul, and, and so David would come in, and when this evil spirit would torment Saul, we don't know uh, what it would do, it would probably added to his paranoia and, and made him uh, uh, depressed and angry, and uh, it's hard to know, but it, it, it really tormented him. Uh, David would play his harp, and relief would come to Saul, and he'd feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Now, this is some good heart playing, you would think, right? Well, no, of course not. What did we discover at the end of the last section? When David was anointed with oil, the Holy Spirit came upon him. David's heart playing is not what caused the evil spirit to leave uh, Saul. It was the fact that David was God's man with God's Spirit, when the Holy Spirit's in a room and a, the, the enemy or a demon is in the room, who has the authority there? The Holy Spirit, every time. He's God, as it turns out. So David comes in with his heart playing, and by the power of the Spirit, he, he is able to overcome the authority of the evil one in the life of King Saul, and the evil spirit would flee. God's champion has the power of the Spirit. And in fact, here we have him, David, the anointed king, serving the rejected king in a spiritual way. Isn't that profound? Isn't that amazing? If David was like any other king that had lived on planet earth, as soon as he was in Saul's presence, what would he have done? Taken one of the strings off his harp, strangled Saul, and sat on the throne. That's what you do. I am king, you are not, you should die. But David doesn't do that. In his lowliness and by the power of the Spirit, he serves the rejected king with this strange task of fighting the demon away from the rejected king. In David and Goliath, perhaps we would assume David's victory came from a sharp mind or a steady hand with a sling. A sharp mind and a steady hand with a sling and a stone will do no good against a spiritual evil. There's nothing that can be done here physically. The authority here, the the thing that is work here is a spiritual force and it requires spiritual authority. Saul exercises his political authority and calls up Jesse and says, send me your son. And Jesse would say, what choice do I have? And what choice would Jesse have? None. In fact, Jesse does what he knows what would assumed to be happening is he not only sends his son, he sends him with provisions so that his son's presence in the king's court wouldn't cost the king anything. So Saul exercises his political authority, but David, in playing his harp, exercises the greater authority, the authority by the, by the spirit of God over an evil spirit, plaguing Paul or Saul himself. We discover this throughout David's life, and we discover it not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, hopefully in our own Christian life. Victory with God is only ever attained by the Spirit. Victory with God is only ever attained by the Spirit. Victory with God is never attained in the absence of the power of the Holy Spirit. How much victory can you achieve without the power of the Spirit? Zero. You can achieve zero spiritual maturity. You can achieve zero spiritual victory. You can overcome zero sin. You can be like Christ. Not at all with, if the Spirit's not present. The only way any of that is achieved is by the Holy Spirit at work in our life. Victory with God is only ever achieved and attained by the power of the Spirit. And God's champion, David, here in the life of King Saul has the power of the Spirit. Just a quick question before we move on to the last section, which of course is your favorite part, David and Goliath. I'm sorry, I forgot to bring the flannel graph. Here's my question to you, and think of of your own spiritual life in God. How do you attain your spiritual victory? Think through the journey of your spiritual life. How have you attained victory? your spiritual victories? Good discipline? Stern accountability from fellow believers or family members? Developing good habits? Church attendance, sacrificial giving? What what are the means by which you have said, I achieve spiritual victory by, what is it? The only answer in the Bible is all spiritual victory is achieved only by, only by the Holy Spirit, only by the Holy Spirit. You do not have in you the power to overcome sin. You do not have in you the power to overcome your lack of spiritual maturity. You do not have in you the ability to make yourself like Jesus. The only one in in all of the universe who has the ability to do any of those things in you is the Holy Spirit. And David did his work. He was God's champion by the power of the Spirit. Look with me at 1 Samuel 17. It's one of the longest... Stories in the Bible has some of the greatest descriptors. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through it in the kind of detail maybe that would be fun to do. But God's champion in, in David, uh, living a life of devotion in the midst of lowliness and being empowered by the Spirit is now going to go and have a great victory. But this victory in, in 1 Samuel 17 is a, a different kind of victory than has ever been achieved before. This is victory redefined. God's champion has victory, in fact, for others. God's champion has devotion and loneliness. God's champion has power by the Spirit. And now we will see God's champion has victory for others. The Philistines had gathered in a valley, on one side of the valley, and they had a lot of army and and, uh, 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 military weapons. And uh, the Philistines were well advanced militarily. I've always used this. Uh, you know, if the United States military took all of their aircraft carriers and sailed to some a far-flung South Pacific island and found a group of villagers who had never seen modern-day man, and we invaded that island, that's what Israel was like in comparison with the Philistines. The, 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 the Israelites would have had pitchforks if they were lucky, and the, and the Philistines had the most advanced iron weapons and chariots and cavalry. It really was a ridiculous notion that Israel could ob- obtain any kind of victory over the Philistines. So on one side of the valley, you had the Philistines. On the other side, you had the people of Israel, and there was a valley in between them, and A champion named Goliath would come out every single day for 40 days, and he would bellow a challenge to the people of Israel. And and Goliath, of course, was a massive human. He was over nine feet tall. He wore well over 130 pounds of armor. And he would stand and shout this, "'Why do you come out and line up for battle?' Goliath would bellow. "'Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul?' Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight together. On hearing the Philistines' word, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Not just the Israelites, Saul, quaking in his armor. So Goliath and the Philistines were gathered, and over and over again, for 40 days, Goliath would come out and bellow a charge, and he was a champion. That means uh, he did not have new armor on, and his his, uh, shield was nicked up and dented. This was not his first rodeo. He knew what he was doing, and he had no fear of losing, absolutely no fear of losing whatsoever. David's three oldest brothers were serving in Saul's army. David and his other brothers were likely under the age required to serve in the army. Either that or it could be that Israel had a maximum number of sons that you would have to give. So David's three older brothers were in the army, and David's father sends David to the front line to take resources to his brothers, take them some food, take uh, some food uh, for the commanders of their unit. In fact, the Bible is so detailed here, it says he sends him ten different kinds of cheeses, I didn't even know there were 10 kinds of cheeses. He sends all these supplies, and he even tells David, bring back a token from your brother so I know that they're okay. Oftentimes during a war, the men were paid in tokens. You would be given a token, and it would be useless money. It would basically be an IOU, but at once victory was achieved and the plunder was received, you could take your token to the quartermaster and say, "I get my, here's my share of the plunder. And so this was one of the ways that families who gave up their sons into battle could be compensated for their sacrifice. And so his dad says, go, take these supplies in, find out if they're okay. And while Jesse is there, Goliath comes out, and he begins bellowing his threat. He lets everybody know what's going on. And David witnesses this bellowing threat, and he witnesses the Israelites running and hiding And he's curious as to what's going on. So David asks about this, and he says, what's the situation here? And they they tell him, listen, here's the deal. Anybody who goes out and kills Goliath, uh, Saul will exempt him, most likely from taxes, and Saul will also give him his daughter in marriage. He will be a wealthy man. And so David keeps asking about this over and over. And finally, uh, his older brother, uh, drop-dead gorgeous Eliab, Even on the battlefield, his hair was perfect. He said, what are you doing, you moron? You come out of your sheep field, you're going to think you're going to get glory for yourself. Scoot along. Get home. Tend to your couple of scraggly sheep, okay? And David says, listen, what's the problem? What's the problem you have with me? See, his older brother was irritated and misunderstood his motive. He thought David was going to seek glory for himself. He thought David was seeking to enrich himself. But that wasn't David's purpose at all. Look with me at verse 26 of 1 Samuel 17. I'll begin in verse 25. The Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give his daughter in marriage. He'll exempt his family from taxes. And David said, uh, David asked the men standing, what will be done for the men who kill the Philistine who removes this disgrace from Israel? Listen, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? See, David here understood something more important was going on here than scared Jewish army soldiers He said, how is it that this man could be allowed to defy God himself? How is it that we could stand idly by while this this champion shouts curses at God's people? And to curse God's people is to curse God himself. So David continues to inquire, and Saul hears about his inquiry. And so Saul summons him and says, well, what's the deal? And David says, don't worry about it. I got it. Send me out. I'll kill him. I don't have a problem. Verse 32, David said to Saul, don't let anyone lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. No big deal. Saul, of course, isn't going to risk it. He says, listen, you have no idea what you're doing. And David says, don't worry about it. When I'm tending my sheep, if a lion attacks me, I just killed a lion. Probably had a necklace with teeth on it. Would have been awesome. I don't know if he did, but I'm just thinking that would be awesome if he did. If a bear attacked the flock, my few sheep, Eliab, I would kill it. Notice my coat of bearskin. I would rescue it. I would seize it by the hair and strike it and kill it. Uh, this Philistine is nothing else. Uh, I tended that flock uh, serving the Lord in faithfulness to God, in devotion and lowliness. God's faithfulness to me, to my few sheep, is no different than His faithfulness in front of this army. Let me go out and take care of this guy because God's faithfulness is unquestionable. So Saul says, fine, gives him his armor. David tries it out and says, never mind, I don't need your armor. I'm not used to it. He was being polite. He said, I've got God, I don't think I need your armor. So David goes out and he shares the gospel with the Philistine, verse 47. Before he kills him, he wants him to be saved. I'm being a little bit silly, but not totally. Verse 46, this is what David said. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. David now not only wants to kill the Philistine champion, Goliath, he wants to kill them all. The rest of Israel had set their goals too low. They wanted to kill one guy, and David said, One guy, with God on my side, I'm just going to wipe you all out. I feel bad for you in some ways, he might say. You are about to die, Goliath, because God is here. And you know the story. He gathers five smooth stones from the creek. He slings the stone. It sinks into Goliath's forehead. David runs up and cuts off his head. And as soon as the giant is dead, the the army of of Israel charges the Philistines and they destroy them and plunder them for miles miles and miles and miles and miles. David had victory. God's champion gained the victory. But who experienced the victory? That army. Hiding in their holes and under rocks and in bushes. David goes out and, and gains the victory. He gains the victory not merely for himself, that he might be, receive glory, but this cowering army in the midst of David's victory is now empowered to plunder. And they plunder like plundering maniacs. I just made that up. That's the thing. They, they go there, wait, he had victory for us. His, we can plunder these people and they charge off the hillside and they destroy the Philistines and everything the Philistines had in their camp, the people of Israel had. The victory David had over the champion was primary, primarily for the benefit of the people of Israel. They're the ones who had the most to gain in the plundering and destruction of the Philistines. God's champion has devotion and loneliness. Remember David at the sheepfold. God's champion has power by the Spirit to do the work of God, even casting out demons from the rejected king of Israel. And God's champion has victory for others. Let me ask you this question before we move on to some concluding remarks Do you need a champion? We asked earlier about how, does, how do you achieve victory? How do you attain victory in your spiritual life? Have you ever got to that point where you say, uh, it turns out I'm terrible at this. Uh, I'm not very good at not sinning. I'm really terrible at doing good things. I really like reading the Bible five minutes every two months. I wish I could say I have a prayer time. It really has sort of turned into more of what I like to call nap time. Anybody else pray like, pray like me? Dear you? G- how was your prayer time today? I don't know. It was so great I was unconscious. I just pray the Spirit used it, right? Do you need a champion? Even as a Christian, do you need a champion because your Christian life isn't even close to what you thought it should be? Look at verse 32 of 1 Samuel 17. David, God's champion, says to us and to Saul, listen, let no one lose heart. It's really interesting to me that in the midst of all David had going on, he was concerned about the heart condition of the people around him. Listen, it's fine. Not because David was some hot stuff. David just understood what God was up to. He said, "Let no one lose heart." So again, let me ask you this: Do you need a champion? Or another way of asking that, in thinking about your relationship with the Lord, have you lost heart? Maybe not today. Maybe at some time in your journey. Have you ever been at that place where you say, I, I don't get it. I don't think I have what it takes. David here says, let no one lose heart. Let no one lose heart. Jesus, then, is the son of who? Who is Jesus' son of? He's called it a million times in the New Testament, son of David. Jesus is the son of David. He is the true champion, the true and better champion that David could ever be. Was Jesus devoted in lowliness? Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he, be, he being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even a cursed death on a cross. Jesus, the God's champion, devoted to God and to us in loneliness and did so much better than David because he did it in loneliness and he never sinned. There's no Bathsheba story in Jesus' life. There's no uh, taking the census story in Jesus' life. Jesus is devoted in loneliness to God in perfection, and His devotion took Him all the way to a cross. Jesus, God's champion, was empowered by the Spirit. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 4, "...the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Jesus is saying, the Spirit of the Lord on me. Jesus is empowered by the Spirit to be completely obedient to the purposes of God during his life. And he never missed one single thing he was supposed to do. Not one single thing went undone. All of the work God called him to do, he did perfectly by the power of the Spirit. He did so even better than David ever could have done. And finally, Jesus is God's champion attaining a victory for others. He said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might receive the righteousness of God. So God's champion, Jesus, now attains a victory, but not merely for himself, a victory for us, that we might receive his victory. He said it this way in a parable in Matthew chapter 12. He had been accused of doing his miracles by the power of Satan. And he says, that's dumb. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Jesus on the cross destroyed the strong man. Satan is is done at that point. His victory is, he's he's completely defeated. He has no power. He has no authority. And it is the job now that the strong man is defeated for us, the cowering, chicken-hearted army of God, to do what? Plunder the enemy. We're to be awakened by victory that's been achieved over the strong man, by the true champion, and have our hearts stirred to say, let's plunder this place. Victory's done. We've won. What's the only mistake a person could make in that moment after Goliath has died? What's the only mistake? It's to sit. That's the only thing. The only thing a person could do wrong in that moment is to sit there and say, boy, you know, the plunder's way over there. Man, I've got to go down the hill. I mean, my shoes are off. I've got these ten cheeses from Jesse. Have you had Jesse's cheese? It's fantastic. You guys go plunder. I mean, that's the only thing a, a person of Israel could do wrong in that moment when Goliath has died, is to sit idly by and say, uh, No, I'll, I'm not going to worry about it. And now Jesus comes and dis- defeats this tr- the true strong man, and he calls us now by the power of his spirit to plunder the enemy. And the only mistake we can make at this point is say, You know, I'm, I, I don't know if I I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard. I don't know if I'm into that. Jesus is devoted in loneliness. Jesus is empowered by the Spirit. Jesus has victory not merely for us, or not merely for himself, but primarily for us, I should say. He is these things. He is all of these things for us. He is all of these things in us. And by the presence of his Spirit, he seeks to make these things truer and truer in our lives day in and day out that we might over the course of our life in Him be more devoted in lowliness and more empowered by the Spirit and willing to have victory for others even in our own life. God's champion. We see a glimpse of it in David, but it's just a small glimpse. David and Goliath have nothing on Jesus and a cross. It is merely intended to draw our gaze to the true victor, who is Jesus, who has defeated the strong man, that we might just simply plunder the enemy the victory's done. It's time now just to simply enjoy and celebrate the victory He has achieved. God's champion, devoted in loneliness, empowered by the Spirit, attaining victory for others.